to Composing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Yeah. Welcome. The, the incredibly well-known Dave Holly and Jill Graham. Yeah. We are stars of media. Okay, welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I are joined by British composer Tariq O'Regan, who's in London from his home in San Francisco for a very special occasion. More of that later. Welcome, Tariq. How are you oh, doing today? I'm good. Good to be here in the uh, the uh, Wise Music uh, studio. Here we are. It's very fancy. We'll can pick up an instrument and play. Yeah, we've got play some, some percussion um, later. various bits of percussion, yeah, tambourines, we'll, and we'll do an improvisation. Bongos, because <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> we normally do these over over the internet. Internet, Tarek, thank you for coming. Um, Good to be. Have, have you just arrived? You're not jet lagged, are you? Or no, you through I, that? I got in a couple of weeks ago, ah. and I was doing a project with uh, the Netherlands Radio Choir in Utrecht. Is this mass observation? It is, yeah. Well, was that based on the mass observation kind of social... Yeah, it took its... Uh, like anonymous diaries and things. Yeah, it took its inspiration from that. And um, I've always found that very interesting, that sort of uh, period where they begin sort of, I guess, eavesdropping. Sort of, It's sort of the beginnings of surveillance, but using people instead of technology, sort of listening to conversations in pubs. Yeah. And it, it, was, all, it was all to do... Initially, with the with the, um, it's very appropriate as as the coronation is tomorrow. The forced resignation of <laughs> Edward VIII, right? Oh, okay. And the government was putting out a party line that everyone everyone's fine with it, yeah. And that this was the right thing to do. And uh, yeah, they started. There was this perception that actually this wasn't wasn't the case, and the people were actually a bit pissed off. That and it seemed all a bit ridiculous to force mm. someone to um, abdicate because of who they wanted to marry. And the mass observation group just started listening to conversations in pubs, and um, that was the beginnings of it. But the piece, yeah, the piece is sort of about our ambivalent relationship with surveillance. We love we love all the stuff on our phones that helps us do everything, but at the same time, it's getting a bit eerie. It is. Um, and we sort of have this love-hate, push-pull relationship with it. But yeah, that's, yeah that's technology piece. enables, but it also pinpoints you. Yeah. And can control right. you because you often need that digital well, app or uh, thing to enter places. Yeah. You know, using the tube, you you need yeah, the yeah. phone. Somebody turns your f- uh, phone app off, you can't get into. Well, I mean, but I, it allows you to travel so quickly. Well, I, live, I live in San Francisco, where you can get into a driverless taxi now. No. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did coming. see one. I was yeah. in LA a couple of weeks yeah. and I saw one on on in the. Uh, was it on the normal freeway? Oh, in San Francisco, they'll go. They'll go on normal roads. Anyway. Yeah, I think any, this but it was like the inside road. lane. Yeah, and yeah, no way. I've not, yeah, there's yeah. two companies that have got to that level of um, license. They're, they're 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 permitted to do it. One is Waymo, and one is Cruise, and um, they are 
It, it is very odd. You just see a car without a driver pull over and someone will get in and it'll drive off again. It's like Blade Runner, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You know, you get, bit, he gets yeah. in the car, doesn't he, in Blade Runner and, and yeah. can only go where it's programmed to go, back yeah. onto... And it, did technology enables, technology can, con, can control. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and living... Since I moved to San Francisco, obviously, and being near Silicon Valley, just, we were talking about this earlier, it's the dominance of tech in that part of the world is... It is quite staggering, just... I mean, there are two things that I find interesting about it. One is we're meant to be in a world of remote life where, you know, any, anything anything can be done anywhere by anybody. Yet there is still this huge geographical focus of needing people in tech to be physically near each other. Yeah. And the, yeah. the companies that are building huge amounts of office space in that part of the world are the same companies telling us that, oh, we can just work remote. Everybody's free. Yeah. yeah, but not if you work for Facebook or Google, where there's this sense that actually, no, you need to be, <laughs> you need yeah. to be near the office and yeah. in the office. And I find that paradox sort of, Again, push-pull. It's what exactly are we meant to believe if, mm. if the companies that are telling us that the future of working life is remote basically don't really believe that. Well, there's, there's a lot of the, the uh, owners of these big tech companies, the, the Google and, and Zuckerberg, Meta now it's called, isn't it? Meta, that's right, yeah. um, You know, my children aren't using a an iPad or an iPhone oh, until they're 18. Yeah, oh, you know, absolutely. Th- there's, there's kind of the yeah. stuff we're making. I mean, it's very, 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 very addictive. Yeah. There are many schools in San Francisco, um, sort of preschools, so, you know, from the age of three to, I don't know, five or six, and they are um, completely screen-free schools. So there's no phones, no tablets, mm. no computers. And I can tell you who sends their kids there. The tech people. The tech, the, and it, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah, and it's like we're going back in time in the oh, classroom. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it would have got to a certain point where that was very useful and facilitated teachers to sort of bring a whole world into the classroom, but now it's been shut down again. Uh, yeah, and it's well, there's and there's a divide because if you look if you look at the state sector in San Francisco, they're being flooded with iPads. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and so in you've the UK. Got this, you've yeah. got this divide between a private sector. I think what looks like to me a divide between a private sector, which is this is deeply addictive at a young age. Yeah. Let's avoid it. Meanwhile, you know, here's here's a company doing good for the world. We've given the school district ten thousand iPads. Yeah. But that's for the state the state yeah. sector. Or what you know, what they call the public school system in the States. Yeah. How how did you end up in San Francisco? Uh, by plane. <laughs> <laughs> turned left. Oh, the Beatles, the Beatles. How did you find New York? We turned left at Greenland. What's yeah. the one about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. practice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've been working on this all morning. No. Mm. <laughs> did you know there's a group called Sparks? You know, they, yes. they had the only song in heaven and... You prob- oh, you're yes. probably t- this town ain't to be enough, enough for the, the both, both of us, us. <laughs> yes. But they had a song called "How Do You Get to Carnegie Hall?" Practice, practice. practice. How do- yeah, it just repeated over and over oh, and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I told you we'd be doing some live yeah. music. <laughs> yeah, uh, San Francisco. So, um, well, uh, we were living. We could talk about this later. I mean, we were, li- we were living in um, what was then, or what had recently changed its name to Eswatini, which is a small kingdom in southern africa um between 
Mozambique and South Africa. It's the last absolute monarchy in Africa. There's basically the king who's on his way here today for the for the, the, the coronation. Studio. No, for the coronation. <laughs> we definitely do a king podcast. <laughs> we definitely do a podcast with King Maswati. Yeah. Uh, he's. <laughs> <laughs> does he comp- does he compose music at all? We mean, yeah. Well, if you believe the PR, yeah. yes. Uh, he, <laughs> um, yeah. So weirdly, he is actually on his way for the coronation. But we were living there, and um, my wife was uh, is a historian and um, uh, was at Cambridge and was looking at um, uh, jobs, uh, and a job came up in history at Stanford, and. I was working at NYU and there was a, a sort of similar post came up at Stanford. So we moved together to Stanford, which is in Palo Alto, the very heart yeah. of the Silicon Valley that we're talking about. And we we lasted about um, a month living down there and we lived in various bits. But the problem with it, the pro- I find the problem in that part of the world is you you, I, you know all the towns by the companies. Yeah. So you... you you go, I'll go, we'll go and live in Menlo Park. Well, that's meta. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll go to, we'll try Cupertino, Apple. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Mountain View, Google. Yeah. And so at some point, we moved north to live in San Francisco proper, partly, partly because prior to living in Eswatini, we <clears throat> was in Manhattan. We were just used to being able to walk everywhere. Yeah. Um, and in San Francisco, you can sort of do that, can't you? You, yeah. you can. It's, it's less, than, less than Manhattan, but it's still, there are pockets where you can basically just walk to a restaurant, walk to the grocery store, walk to school if you need, you know, I mean, that, so that's what we were really looking for. And uh, we did that, moved there in 2019. Oh, wow, just before the the, just the world before. collapsed yeah. for a few years. Yeah. Which was interesting out there because um, these big sort of global companies, and I, would, I think I would include Stanford in this, were very aware of what was going on in China towards the end of 2019. And I remember... Friends of ours that worked for Amazon had travel restrictions put in place in January, oh, wow. long wow. before, and then uh, Apple did it. And then I remember uh, at Stanford there was a there's no, there, you're now there's no international business travel, and this was sort of January, early February. Yeah. And then because the city, I think that pressured the city to change, and then because um, they owned the, <laughs> do you remember they owned the Opera House and the concert yeah. hall? Uh, one day they just locked it up. Mm. Oh my god! And it was, it's got yeah. shut, and then and then and then everything shut down. Yeah, yeah. But the good part of that is we got it, we'd recently arrived, so it was, in a way it was a good way to explore the city and the areas around the city, which is so beautiful, sort of Marin County up and down the mm. coast. And I don't think we would have done if life had carried on because you just keep travelling yeah. for work and you're always going here and there. But suddenly you're stuck there. You know what are you going to do? Well, let's go for a, a walk. You know, go and drive somewhere, find find somewhere else to look at. So we really got to know. The area and sort of really fell in love with it, actually. Um, and yeah, I love living there now. Mm. Yeah, it can be quite foggy, can't it? And wet yeah. and cold at times. But well, it's you, all... it always flatters to see in terms of the, the, the sun up there. Yeah, and you go out and it's just a little bit cold, yeah. a little bit, a bit damp. Nippy. Yeah, and it's all the, and the microclimates is what's yeah. so bizarre. So yeah. where we are is normally sunny, and the further west you go to the ocean. It's normally foggy. And where my studio is in Hayes Valley, which is 
by the way, that the, now the centre of all things AI, which yeah. is, you know, the, ne- oh, the, ne- the next thing that we... <laughs> next week's podcast will yeah. be done by three AIs. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. God help them. Yeah. Um, but it's the sort of thing where you're going to have, you know, if, if, if you're going to have lunch with someone three blocks away, you'll phone them to ask them what the weather's like. Oh, wow. Because it's so radically different around the city. Um, and it, it's, it is bizarre. I find it very bizarre just yeah. how, um, you know, weird, weirdly different it is. We, we're meant to start these podcasts by asking, by asking a question, which, was, which is, can you, can you, we probably should get back on track and yeah, be proper podcasters, stop enjoying ourselves. Every five seconds, so we, we might start with a good yeah. intention. Go, go for it. Can you remember, was there a moment when you, were, when you were very young where you first heard some music and your brain or your soul or your body went, wow, what is that? Um, yes, it was going through my mother's LP collection, which she'd largely bought in um, Algeria. And she, uh, growing up, she, she was born in Morocco and grew up in Algeria. And she had got very into um, the sort of British rock scene of the 70s. So I remember listening to um, the Led Zeppelin live album, Song Remains the Same, and oh, yeah. just the opening of that, which begins with, I think, rock and roll and just yeah. um, not quite believing what I was hearing. And that, I must have been some, you know, must have been about eight. That's sort of a very, that's a very vivid memory of feeling there is some other world out there musically that I'd not encountered and was desperate to find out more about. Whereas obviously I'd encountered music at school, mm. and but I hadn't heard John Bonham coming in with and I was like what is this (laughs) but yeah it's a very very vivid memory yeah and I think the interesting thing from my mother's perspective is it was it it was what she was desperate to listen to because it was it was music from England and America it was the other yeah to her yeah um and so yeah she had all these LPs of Zeppelin and the Stones and the Who definitely I started going through them Bit oh, wow. by bit, yeah, yeah, that, that, very vivid, and trying to um, trying not to scratch the other, yeah, <laughs> and being my father showing me how to do it and not you proper know. needle drop, yeah, exactly, yeah. <sighs> little lever, little lever, and you, and then you could you could make the the um, speed change very subtly. Mm-hmm. Could you? Oh, what? Yes. By putting your finger on it? No, or? no. There was there, there there was you know you could be thirty three and a third or forty five, yeah. but. Um, for people that you know were obsessed with um, pitch, you could move, wow. you could change the the. the um, fancy! That's I think far it was fancier fancy. than anything I had. Yeah. And a really, we had a really old. It'd been given to my father from his father, a really old valve amplifier, oh, and which, which can course, sound lovely. Yeah. yeah, and of course, all I could think of is why? Why does it take a minute? Yeah. To, to hear walk, any music? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all my friends have got ones that start. All my yeah. friends have got ones that start immediately. <laughs> got to warm up. <laughs> and now, now, now I think you know. Yeah. Now that and all I wanted was a tape, tape yes. machine. I wanted to hit play, hear the music instead yeah. of take the record out, mm-hmm. put it on the thing. And I thought this was so awful. Well, and of the vinyl, they're actually yeah, using vinyl. Too, so, yeah, because yeah, I was too young, and yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so now I look back to it and think, God, this is what everyone. It's just the yeah. dream, you know, vinyl, <laughs> valve amp, the warm right. sound. Yeah. I know. Now, you know, it's, it's vinyl snob yes. kind of heaven, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Outselling s- s- 
upselling CDs. CDs in probably value, not volume, because yeah. it's. Right, right. There was, I, I saw. Um, Expensive. What album was it? It was something like Dark Side of the Moon. It was fifty-four yes. pounds. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was like a special edition thing, but it was the album. Wow. With probably some cutting the cut out in things it. in it. No, there's no moon. No, I don't think it was just the vinyl. Oh, Heavy vinyl yeah. you know, pressed in a certain place. Literally pressed on moon rock. Yeah. Con- yeah. <laughs> 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 that's why it cost yeah. Talking of uh, Zeppelin, I was at the yeah. opera with John Paul Jones. Last John night. Paul Jones, the yeah, great, there the we great go, John the great Paul Jones. Who, you know, he probably heard one of your operas and decided he was gonna write an opera. He you did, know, I, and what I goes around comes around, Tarek. I remember mm. meeting him at uh, the Limbury at Heart of Darkness. Yeah. And I remember meeting him and saying, oh, there's a bit in this that I think I stole from... <laughs> yeah, from, I remember that. <laughs> ...from a song called The Crunch. Oh, I don't know that one. It's the one that's just, it's in a, it's in a very off-kilter 9-8 beat. Um, and he told me a funny story about it, uh, which I've never seen printed elsewhere, so it may, may be worth checking checking this as correct but what I remember rightly is um, the original artwork for that album which is Houses of the Holy they wanted to put do you, do you know do you remember those you've seen have you ever seen those um, pictures of um, steps which show you how to dance a particular yeah. dance with arrows yep. and yeah. yeah so they wanted to do a fake one sort of for the crunch yeah. and a, and according to John Paul Jones their lawyer said you, you realise that anyone doing this is going to fall over and break their neck and you're just going to have millions of lawsuits because oh, no. <laughs> they're going to try to, to, to follow your pattern oh, to this thing lawyers taking the fun out of everything <laughs> but I remember I remember that conversation with him but I mean he's such a polymath isn't he he's yeah. a sort of terrific uh, he's actually a nice bloke very nice yeah. um, so talking of music and careers when did you decide to make it your career I think pretty late, actually. Um, and it's one of those, in a way, it's one of those things that you sort of have to keep, I think, it's one of those things you have to sort of keep recommitting to in a funny way. Um, and I, I really thought about that during the pandemic when so many people left the profession. Mm. I mean, that was sort of quite scary in a way that um, people that you'd known to be in the music business their whole life were just out of it. Performers typically, mostly performers, but some. I think yeah. some composers as well. Just the, the psychology of sort of writing music in a vacuum. Yeah, you know, what, what am I writing? Yeah. What am I? There's no. What am I writing this for? There's no concert halls open. Um, so I think when I when I, th- I mean, I, I think that I think the first hint of it was sort of thinking about doing a a, a postgraduate degree which I did with mm-hmm. Robin Holloway at Cambridge. I think that's the first time that you think, OK, this is more than just, uh, you know, an education, that maybe there's something there's something in that. And by that time, I'd met you at the... Society for the Promotion of New Music. <laughs> <laughs> George Butterworth Award winner. George Tara Butterworth. Garriga. I like George Butterworth, actually. Good, good, good. Uh... Anointed by the late and much-missed Steve Martland. Of course, Steve, what a legend. Yeah, he was, he was, um, that's right, he was sort of, you, he was artistic director. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think you sort of get in, you know, you do postgraduate degree and then you start involving yourself with these sort of professional support networks like SPNN, which is now Sound and Music. Is, is that fair to, or so, so yes. part of Short it's hand. gone into? Yeah. yeah. Um, you apply for competitions. Uh, but I think... 
you know, I think the first time I really thought uh, I would make a go of it was probably quite late, probably l- long after I'd moved to New York, which I did in mm. 2003 or four for a Fulbright. Because that's still, I think, part of growing education. Um, but it was... And then I'd had a... I did um, still part of these educational establishments in the States, a fellowship at Harvard and then at Yale. And at some point I applied for that um, creative arts fellowship in Cambridge, Trinity College, Cambridge. And I think that's the first time I remember more or less putting composer as profession. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? That, yeah. That's committing to something. You know, yeah. On your passport yeah. or something, I yeah. am, I am writer, composer, yes. artist. And, and, and I remember the fellowship was specifically for sort of, and here's you know, the word career, early to mid-career artists. Mm. And so it was suddenly like, well... The C word. The C word. <laughs> <laughs> Not that C word. No, <laughs> Friday morning. Yeah. Uh, no wonder I didn't get anything else after. No. Uh, <laughs> that C word. Yeah. Got it now. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's I think, and that was the the nice thing about that was like a, that was a few years where they sort of treat, treated you like a research scientist, and they didn't expect you to do to deliver anything. Mm-hmm. You were just doing research which of composers is thinking and writing and that was the first time I sort of really felt um, oh this is my job now that's, that is quite late 2007 yeah um, so I was 29 oh yeah um, so 16 years ago and you'd been in banking hadn't you briefly or in the city briefly yeah a proper job that's that yeah when I yeah I went wow worked for Didn't JP Morgan that. yeah yeah how did you find that Oh, you know, the th- I mean, in one way, in one way, it was terribly um, not diverse. And at that time, it was still hugely male-dominated, and yeah. very few um, women were in banking. That has changed. But the one thing that was truly amazing was you had people from all over the world, um, and from all backgrounds and all walks of life. And so, and that was very different to any education or experience mm. I'd had like I, you know I sat next to someone that had left school at 16 oh wow oh, um, yeah. you know and you then you had people with two doctorates yeah and you had people that had gone to the best schools and people that had gone to the worst schools and people that lived in very fancy parts of London and people that had grown up uh, in council estates and, and it, it, there was something oddly equalizing um about that and it's funny because i think about that quite a lot that it's very rare that i've been in environments like that again Mm. um actually yeah um yeah making money is a very egalitarian (laughs) if you're if you're good at it you're in (laughs) yeah basically yeah Yeah. i think that's exactly right um but then i i did feel i wanted to get back to music so yeah Mm. that's when i decided to do my masters with Robin at uh, at Cambridge, and that was. Yeah. I remember you um, kind of sticking two fingers up at the establishment, if you like, because part of your final portfolio was to write a fugue. Oh God! Yeah. And, uh, is that when you wrote cliches? Yeah, I called it cliches. Tell us about that because that was hilarious. <laughs> it was. Thank you. Just before you start, what is a fugue? There is we go. An, it, Harry, yeah. Tell what Dave. Is a fugue. That's a very good question. Um, a fugue is. Um, a f- 
one of our oldest musical forms. So many people would say that the form um, was perfected, if you like, by Bach. Mm. And essentially, um, what a fugue is, is the idea of taking one musical line and um, manipulating it as it goes on in such a way that it can play against itself. So a bit like a round. Yeah. But the trick is that you're trying to do it with not just one, but another, a third voice and a fourth voice. And the, the complicating thing is that as your subject, as they call it, the, the starts carrying on, when the next subject comes in, the sort of next bit of the round, the, the counter subject, the bit that's still going on underneath, has to be interesting enough that it can be flipped around and turned around and played backwards and play against itself. Yeah. Um, and the other complicating factor is that it's a, it's a bit of a show traditionally of um, harmonic dexterity, I would say. You're trying to not just keep it all in one key. You're trying to shift around different tonal areas um, and eventually uh, get back uh, to the beginning. And it's basically like a sort of bit of a show. I think it's a bit of a way of showing off, but there are a series of mathematical rules that govern how you do it. Um, And for some reason, and I am sure this has changed, both Oxford, where I studied undergraduate, and Cambridge, where I did my postgraduate, were obsessed with fugues. I mean, obsessed mm-hmm. with fugues. So, and it was it was felt that a fugue was the ult, the ultimate proof of your worth as a musician. And I think it's odd because I think it obviously ha- it is the influence of Bach, but I think. Uh, Bach would have would have felt that that was part of many things that he did, mm. composing, conducting, writing fugues, improvising. Yeah. Um, but the idea of extrapolating just the fugue bit, I thought was quite weird. But yeah, and and so that was undergraduate. You had to write a fugue um, like in the style of Bach on yeah. a bit of manuscript paper, which I, which was hard. And I'm trying. And I wouldn't say it's useless. I mean, it's actually quite. It's quite good at teaching you how to. Um, I often I often think back to it when I get stuck in a piece. Oh, right, yeah. Now, because there are lots of little tricks that you learn when writing fugues, how to get, literally, how do I get the next note? And you're sort of trying to work it out mm-hmm. mathematically. So that's quite useful. Yeah, yeah. And in postgrad, there wasn't, <coughs> there wasn't this sense of, like, you have to write a fugue in the style of Bach. It can be any fugue. So there are some famous fugues. Probably the, what's the most well-known, probably, like, um, cool from West Side Story yeah. is a fugue. That's a fugue as they come in. Anyway, so you could write a fugue in whatever way you wanted. And I, I just I kept asking, like, just why? I kept saying, I don't have to keep writing. So um, I kept saying, well, I kept thinking, it's such a cliche that we're forced to do. Anyway, so I wrote a piece called Cliche. Yeah. And it, was a fugue, it was a fugue for jazz sextet. Yeah, yeah. It was done by the London Sinfonietta, I think. It was. At... Um, that bastion of... Uh, uh, State of the nation. <laughs> what was that? I, the, it was a terribly the proud hubris. of itself um, <laughs> weekend of 
contemporary music in all shapes. Did sizes, you organise this, Jill? I was part of it. And, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you, look, you look slightly ashamed. <laughs> yes. And to call it, it was us, London Symphony Theatre, the British Music Information Centre, the South Bank, you know, BBC and Radio Three, BBC Radio, and to call it State of the Nation. I mean, honestly, and, and there was certain of us who called it State of Japan. <laughs> 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 But it it, it, apart it was from a the great name, window yes, shopping yes, correct. exercise. Apart from the name, it was brilliant, and it was the it, uh, uh, you just you it was great. You'd get everything. You'd get yeah. you know your broadcast. You get your performance. You get to talk about your piece. Um, but yes, the state the state of the nation name was like this is the state of this. This is yeah. Look yeah. at the state of this the music. State of you. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember I was I was with. Um, Couple of conveyors. Well, the, the one I remember is who I music I do quite like is um, Die for Jakura. Oh yes, was on my was on my. Uh, you were in a sort of cohort of about eight, I think. Mm. Yeah, and you all had to you all had to line up and get your photograph taken. But did you work? Did you collaborate with no, each other? No, no. It was you. You'd you been were all picked. Your own thing. You'd been picked to, to to represent the state of the nation. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah. Jill's got Jill's 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 left the room. No. Yeah. <laughs> the KLF <laughs> left the building. And of course, you, you didn't get paid for that, did you? You know, it was all That's for the right. greater good of That's the loveliness right. of the thing. And when did you first get paid for a piece of music? Ooh, that's a good question. I think when did I first get actually properly paid? I think it was a piece for Clare College, Cambridge. Okay, great. The Tim Brown, um, and uh, he actually, yes, and it was it was a piece that they were bringing to Spitalfields, and I I remember Spitalfields Festival, and Clare College had got some money together and paid me to write um, a Magnificat. Heavens. For a concert. That's right. In the Spitalfields Church, was yeah, that? Yeah, the Hawksmoor Church. Yeah, yeah. yeah beautiful. That. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, lovely acoustic. So that, God, 2001, Pre-New York, yeah. Pre-New York, yeah. So not quite turned pro-mentally. You're still yeah. student-y. Sort before, of, yeah. But heading towards it, yeah. Yeah. I'd begun thinking about moving to New York um, or moving to the States. I mean, it's funny. To, it's funny, actually. The state of the nation thing is quite, quite. I'd be interested to know what you think, Joe, because I feel like we can, can go off the record. Yeah, uh, <laughs> cut anything out. <laughs> feel free to yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. completely ignore and say. Have you, what? Ha- have you known me to hold back? <laughs> You're not a very frank person. Yeah. Um, no, I. One of the reasons I felt like. I wanted to leave, apart from being interested in the States and particularly New York. And it certainly, I felt it, it was nowhere near as bad as composers say it was in the 1980s, for example, um, But I've, in the UK. Mm. But I felt there was still some musical orthodoxy, that there was still a sense of a way in which one should be writing classical music in still still in the early 2000s. And it was beginning to change, but... But I'd sort of begun to move away into... So the way that I would say that was there was a sort of um, ultra-detailed, hyper-orchestrated way of writing music. And this was 
and and there 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 was a sense that uh, you always had to have a good reason for why a particular note was where it was, mm-hmm. and that there was a, one had to justify one's choices and to just write music because mm. you like the sound of it wasn't quite oh God, no. was not was not okay, and I found myself wanting to just write music because I like it and I, more and more direct music, sort of just from me to you. I think you're absolutely right because I think you know there was an a, a time and a place where contemporary music was all shoved together with itself mm-hmm. and pushed at the public in quite a concentrated shop window, mm-hmm. if you like. And people like Gillian Moore, who were programming contemporary music at the time, did it for the London Sinfonietta. And the Sinfonietta was the kind of new music ensemble of the UK, mm, if you like. It was huge, wasn't the it? The BBC Symphony Orchestra, yes, was doing Boulez and more established composers, yeah, yeah. if you like. But the emergencies, the emerging composers, um, the Sinfonietta were working with. But Gillian would also programme Steve Reich and Philip Glass, yeah. etc. So that... And, and I think she kicked against the sort of doctrine, which was... If you're going to write a piece for the London Sinfonietta, you have to write it in a particular style. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, prior her artistic directorship of the ensemble, was very much what you're saying. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't sound and fit that box, yeah. then you're not going to get to the party. Uh, that's and right. you're not going to make the money. And whereas I remember interviewing you for the Fulbright Scholarship. Yeah, that's right. And going... And we'd had this discussion about why you wanted to go to New York and experience what Philip Glass had experienced. You know, so that sort of the Brooklyn, if Mm. you like, element of creating music in a world which was much more open in terms of its programming. Mm -hmm. And I think we've moved a long way from it. And I think State of the Nation put a few people in position for which they're thankful for, but... And, you know, the majority of it was, I never want to hear that again, ever in my life. <laughs> and, I will not, and I will not support selling that yeah. to anybody. And I remember you and Joby Talbot yeah. in the SPN offices having a conversation saying, we just want to write people music that people want to listen to. And it's no surprise yeah. that both you and Joby were quite, taken by the music of people like John Taverner and yeah. Steve Reich. And Mar- Steve Martin. And Steve yeah, Martin, yeah. you know, who were not swimming in that slightly purist mm. contemporary music of a certain style, no pain, no gain kind of music. But when you start with um, rock and roll by Led Zeppelin, mm. it must yeah. be very difficult to stay in a box. <laughs> it's true, <laughs> and, and presumably you've... You, you. I don't know. Did you, did you, did you listen to uh, kind of music from Morocco and Algeria? Yeah, your, yeah. your yeah. mother, absolutely. And, and, yeah. You know, it must be difficult to stay in a box. Then, if if you've got all sorts of things, and you're a little bit older, you know. Yeah, you, I, you, think, you've got I think interests. Um, absolutely. I think what happened as I got older is you, you end up thinking about the music you listened to growing up. Um, actually, and there's a. The music that's around you is hugely influential, but you may not take it in. So there was, all, I was always listening to, um, particularly when I was out in Morocco and Algeria with with, that, with that, my family out there. There was always local music playing um, all the time, but because it's sort of just in the background, it's 
not something that I consciously remember in the same way that I remember the, the, the Led Zeppelin LP. But what happens later on is you start conjuring up those memories, which are inherently inaccurate. So it's not a sort of ethnographic journey towards authenticity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really you know, try and work out, I'm going to do my PhD in ethnomusicology and work out exactly what this oud is playing. It's more like... Yeah, I remember those long car journeys and just this music coming on, and then it would, and then suddenly it would be Madonna Holiday, because because it was because that's yeah. what someone's happened. changed the cassette, yeah. And, yeah. It, <laughs> and it and it and so that's that's always struck me that music has that ability to um, just switch randomly as if someone's changed the cassette, but it's part of a bigger whole. And, and mm. if I think of those long journeys. It was Zeppelin. It was it was Madonna. It was the local oud player. It was a local rye band, whatever it is. And it, 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 for me, that sort of the metaphor of the car journey is very strong in my mind. That this is a great variety of direct music that one can listen to and feel connected to um, as you travel. And that I keep going back to that. And so a lot of the work I've done recently is sort of thinking about that feeling and those those that music I listened to quite a lot up until the age of about 13 or so and it's funny you mentioned Philip Glass I just remembered he was my referee he was for the Fulbright oh wow yeah. so remember, did you get to spend some time I did yeah I remember talking to him a lot about I mean, he's got such a good philosophy sort of like the Groucho Marx philosophy which is basically a lot of his successes <laughs> I think he was channeling Groucho Marx says, well, you, you just turn up Mm. It's keep turning up. Just keep turning up. It, it, it is. It is. Yeah. I, I, there's so many musicians that I truly respect that basically say versions of that. Yeah. Turn up, do the gig, whatever it is, write the music, turn up. Every day. Every day, yeah. go back. And, yeah. and I can't, I mean, the countless musicians I've met who basically say it, it's, it's attrition. It's like if, if you keep turning up, and other people stop turning up, you'll still be there <laughs> turning up. You know, it's sort of it was, maybe it was great much, but it was somebody that said the last kid in the playground, the one who doesn't go home at night, yeah, still practicing his basketball hoop. That's the one that gets yeah. selected in the end yeah. because yeah. everyone's gone home for their tea. But it's yeah. true. It stuck with me that this sense of just, just keep going, just keep, you know, every career has highs and lows, and yeah. it's very interesting having a career as a composer in different territories because you see those highs and lows never quite match in mm -hmm. you don't you're not you're not being played everywhere all the time and nowhere all the time but you'll see tastes change around yeah. the, around the, the territories that you're working in and you you realize that you know it's totally human those sine waves of of um interest in work and i think so this sense of just just keep writing you know don't get your head down. That's something. It's, I, I know that's a very sort of dull thing, but it's so <laughs> so true. It's all I can say. Hundred percent believe in that across yeah. all disciplines. Yeah. You keep turning up. You yeah. keep going.
Do, do you have a routine to your writing? Do you, do, you, do you? I mean, is that every day you write at a certain point as part of your good habits to keep turning up? Yeah, well, right now, I've, I, I had a... So, yes, is the answer to that. And it sort of has changed slightly because, weirdly, during the pandemic... I was so busy as a composer, and I think I don't know if you some other. I know I know that some other composers really lost a lot of work, and mm. obviously our industry suffered hugely. So I'd, you know I'm aware of that, but for me it was extremely stressful because I think a lot of organisations, uh, performing arts organisations, had especially in America where they're philanthropy based, um, sort of had to get through their budget but they'd let um, all the performers yeah. go. So the one thing they could do was commission music. The, the back end of this, I don't know if you find this, but there's presumably a massive pipeline now of, of commissioned yeah, yeah. pieces that are, that are, you know, you probably can have premieres every day for the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you had the venues. Because <laughs> <laughs> lack of venues the is back, part yeah. of the tunnel as well, a funnel. And so I found the pandemic very odd. I was extremely busy, um, there was nothing going on musically. I thought I was in some weird planet where I was writing music. And you write and you never know where this music's going to mm. be done. You're like, why am I keep writing? And then the venue started opening. So then there was, there was the ultra-tight commissions that come in, which was, we're having a gala opening yeah. in, in, in six weeks. We, we, need a, we need a piece, but they, they, it's specifically for this lineup because we're only now at 14 and a half instruments on the stage <laughs> and they have to be seven feet apart and one of them's a tuba. Yeah. And it was like, go. <laughs> and, and so that, it was very, very busy. And I've got a separate studio to where I live. Um, and so when that ended, and then we had a baby in the uh -huh. middle of it um, a year ago. But what, what I realised was that I was getting quite unhappy writing music because I felt it was relentless. And um, the big realisation I had is that I actually really love writing music if I'm not doing it all the time. Mm. And so my routine now is I do three days of composing, oh. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, Full days? Yeah. Yeah. And I always turn up. I drop my older kid off at school. And I walk down to my office, and I'll be there at nine. And it is uh, again another dull point. It is nine to five. Yeah, yeah. And I just do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I do. I look after our one-year-old on the Tuesday and the Thursday. And Love I that. I've never been happier. It's a, for many reasons, but the most the most interesting thing I think I found is the, the work hasn't changed. It's the same work. But it's gone. It's gone from something that was making me really quite unhappy to something that makes me immensely happy. And it's not that I'm doing three fifths of the work. I'm still doing the same amount of work. I think I'm just a bit more productive and efficient mm. with fewer time. Do you remember that? What's that? Um, Parkinson's law. Um, work work expands, expands to fill the time that's available. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of the reverse of that. I, by I, by by it. it I, I do the same amount of work in three days that I did in five days. Yeah. And there's, okay. there's something I found, not, I'm not in the creative game, but getting through work. Once That's actually not true. He's writing a children's book. I actually oh, really? finished it yeah. this morning. Congratulations, My, I, I've been going Brilliant. to a workshop. I've, it's taken five years. That's amazing. I think it's good. But we'll see. We need to Can't wait. Public, we'll roll, see. Roll, Tarek. Um, yeah. 
official. Like, yeah. You finished it this morning. Finished this morning. Ba bum. <laughs> Brilliant. It's called the Fancy Cheese People. Fancy. It's a children's book. <laughs> Thirty-two thousand words. That, when, when I did the first draft, it was at 140,000 words, and I had to... The, the, the workshop leader went, I think you might have to cut that down a bit. It's, it's, it's aimed at 8 to 11-year-olds. I don't think they can read 120... Oh, God. So, so that's been the last few months, cutting it down. But when I first had children, that's when I started being a lot more efficient in the way I worked. Yeah. You know, you had suddenly boxes yeah. where you had to go and do stuff for other people, and, and maybe that's contributed towards your. I think so. Yeah, definitely efficiency. It's, yeah, mm. I think, yeah. and I think, and people. I mean, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be. I mean, people have things in their lives that suddenly become. So it's not in my yeah. case, it's kids. But I mean, because kind of children can expand to fill as much of your <laughs> life as you as you allow them. <laughs> it's true. I found, yeah. It, or, or people that have suddenly got to look after a relative, you know, yes. Who's, yes. Who's, and like you, it, suddenly that is your top priority, and mm. you have to do it, uh, or whatever it is. You know, people have things in their lives that suddenly become the number one thing that they're dealing with, and um, yeah, this sort of you do fit the work around it in a more efficient way. It's very, very odd, but mm. it's but it's true, yeah. So that's my routine. I, I like working separately out of the house. I discovered that many years ago, and it's something to do with um, the way that composing, you know, naturally doesn't really just end at five. Mm. It sort of keeps going. And I, but I find that the physical distance is the nearest thing I've got to leaving that on the desk um, and it not stressing me out at home or sort of... Um, encroaching massively into my non-composing life, um, but it is always there. Do, do, like now, we're obviously both creatives. We can talk. You, oh, yeah. you chill. Just try sure. and keep up with this conversation. But, but what I found was <laughs> when I was writing this book that I, before I got to sleep at night, I would suddenly wake up and I had to have a um, a pad by the side oh, of my bed. I don't doubt it. Do, do you have ideas that just pop into your head and you've yeah. got to get them down somewhere before... Yeah, mm. definitely. And I, the way I do it is I, so I... I wish I had a pad. I email, I, I email myself the most ridiculous emails, which is basically a verbal description of what I've thought, which sometimes ends up with, like, literally writing pictures down. Like, D... <laughs> D, long bit of D, E-flat, short bit of E-flat... <laughs> And sometimes the next day you think, "What was what that? does what? that mean?" <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but yeah. You're... And I was going to ask you. Uh, there, there's two things I want to talk to you about. One is the influence of your heritage, if you yeah, like, you yeah. know, dual Arab and Irish. Yeah. You've talked about car journeys. Yeah. I thought you were going to talk about South London. Could no. about South well, London. there's that as well. Croydon. Croydon. Yeah. I'm, cl- um, I'm in Clapham. So for, there you go. But I know a lot of people. Center of the do world. you feel that you're channeling those things? Do they are they yeah. intrinsic to your makeup and your? I outfit? think no. I think they've become intrinsic, and I think they've become in the way that I think naturally, as one gets older, you think about who you are, or you might think about this: who you are, where you come from. Um, you start getting. I start getting sort of getting interested in old family members, and because mm-hmm. um, you've just got your. Great uncles or somebody's war medals? Yes, my great uncle Patrick, um, Paddy, 
O'Regan. Um, O'Regan. So that generation of the last, my my grandfather's generation are the are the Irish, <laughs> yeah. yeah, are the Irish ones, um, and he uh, he was an interesting guy. So, but basically, yeah, he f- he joined what was then called Special Operations Executive, which was SOE, which eventually got folded into SIS. S- SAS, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, this is it's got folded into <laughs> MI6, but bits All right. of, yeah. Um, and basically what that was is you'd work undercover behind enemy lines. So he, with fake documents or whatever, so he spent most of the Second World War in France training uh, resistance members and then the equivalent in Italy with the partisans. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then he became, and then he worked in the Foreign Office, although I think, most people, I think, realise that he was probably under diplomatic cover for MI6 because he worked in Moscow. Um, but he led a very interesting, very interesting life. And died quite young in the 60s. Um, and uh, his papers are in the Imperial War Museum archive, but I just got the, the medals uh, that he was awarded the Military Cross Oh my God. Twice, blimey! Yeah, well, I think it was pretty He's scary. Pretty war. hard man, I think. Yeah, it was it, tough guy. But yeah, so that that generation of the sort of Irish O'Regans who came over from Ireland and well, they went all, you know they went all of, all over the world. So my grandfather um, came to England and then he worked abroad his whole life as a diplomat. Um, beginning in what was then Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. and that's where my father was born. Um, and then my father grew up in Uganda and Jamaica because that's where his father, my grandfather, was posted around around various places. So from the interesting thing about that is you've got one side of the family that is very much part of colony and empire on my father's side, and then you've got my mother's side, who is Arab, born under French occupation, yeah. with a sort of complicated relationship with France um, as equally negative as it is positive it's a very yeah. it's a very interesting sense but I mean thinking about that and talking to them about that has always sort of interested me and then going back down the Oregon line um, there are these very interesting relatives um, who are very much connected with with Ireland and so that 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 you know that sense of sort of looking at the Irish side came a lot later, uh, partly because people would get in touch with me because one of my rel- one of my relatives, my great-great-great-grandfather is someone called William Rowan Hamilton, who was a very famous mathematician yeah. and was um, astronomer royal of Dublin back when Dublin would have royal in anything. Yeah. Um, Copernicus. And, pe- <laughs> and people would come and... People would, people would get would email me, you know, people that are into, into genealogy and things, would sort of email me, uh, do you have a picture of this person? You know, his daughter married John, John, John O'Regan, your great-great-grandfather. Do, do, do you know what happened to this person? And that's what started getting me pulled more and more into my Irish side. And coincidentally, I then started working with, with um, Chamber Choir Ireland um, when, it, when uh, Paul Hillier took over. Mm. Um, and the pieces that interested me to write for them were these sort of old medieval um, texts based on sort of Irish folklore that I've, I'd always been into, sort of inter- interested independently. Um, and so it is something that I think happens... 
There's probably a reason why people get older and suddenly go onto Ancestry.com or yeah. whatever it is, right? Well, I think so. You know, there's something human in you that starts in this massive universe where you're a tiny little blip. Yeah. How, how am I here doing this? And so for me, it's come out musically, you know. That's been really sort of my interest probably for the last 10 years, funnily enough, sort of going in and out of that. Yeah. Amazing. So probably when I was about that age, I decided to scan every single photo in our oh, family history. So I've got 70,000 photos wow. scanned and tagged. Wow. So I can pull any relative up. I put a year in. They go back to the 1890s, these wow. photos. And, and, um, and that was it. And I went through my, you know, my mother's thing, my grandparents' photos, my wife's I've done all my wife's side of the family as well. Wow. And I asked all my friends, you know, when we were growing up, to send, rather than give me presents, send me photos that you took of all us, us lot when we were wow. young. And I've wow. got all those in. And that's wow. part of kind of, you know, where did I come from? Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm, also, I'm seeing it. I hope, it, I know the kids start using it, you know, because they, yeah. they go and look for photos they're in yes but I hope it becomes something that we, we you know they keep up and add to because a it's a fantastic legacy. resource what yeah beautiful it's idea. all on your phone you know I can, yeah. I can see them all on it's on Flickr well, it's on various it, things but it, Flickr it, it, it's interesting because I've been video chatting with my five year old and uh, you know is he interested in the coronation no I'm going to meet the king not interested yeah. what is he interested in he can see because I've been staying with my parents I've got little photos in the background in my bedroom and he's like, what's that photo? And I'm saying, oh, that, that is me when I was your age. Oh, can you bring that back? I'm really interested in that. Who's that? Oh, that's your, that's your grandmother when, when, when she was younger than me. Can you bring that one back? Yeah. I'm oh. like, do you, do you want the invitation to the coronation? No. No. No, not interested. Not interested at all. Tomorrow you're attending the world premiere of... A piece. Are you allowed to tell us yes. about yes. the piece? Are you allowed yeah. to tell us about how on earth did you end up writing a piece that will premiere live on BBC TV to at the coronation of King Charles III? <laughs> Maybe hundreds is, of millions of people, yeah. if not north of a billion. Yeah. Well, firstly, it starts with a big bribe. And, uh, okay, no, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a brown paper envelope. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there was a suitcase of cash, you see. And the next thing I knew, yeah. I got a phone call from Buckingham Palace. Couldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah, so it's um, it's the Arnius Day. So I'm not involved. There's a concert beforehand, which is covers the route, I think, when the procession's happening. So I'm not involved with that. That's lots of good stuff happening there. But in the service itself, which is basically a mass, sort of Eucharistic service with a bit of um, crown. And long. It is quite long. Oh, is it? It's all the bling. It's, it's about two hours, I think, isn't it? I don't actually know. I, I think it's 11 till 1. What, what, you're going tomorrow? Yes. What, all I've been told is to turn up at uh, what time? in the morning, like 8 in the morning. Oh, blimey. Yeah. And do they sort of lock you in? For actually, a... can I borrow this bottle? Yeah. I'll, I'll need that tomorrow. <laughs> you need a bottle. I still wanted an empty yeah, one. I need an empty <laughs> bottle. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I hope the camera doesn't look at me because yeah. I'll just be sort of... I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> um, there, will, there will be some older chaps there who will not be able to go longer than thirty minutes. I mean, knowing what state the yeah. Abby's going to be in at the end. <laughs> anyway, um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
That's why they got all the stable hands yeah. there. Um, so, um, <laughs> there's a piece coming out of this. I can feel it. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you are sitting in the choir, I believe. Yes, that's right. In the choir. Not in next, the actual choir singing, but in the, the choir In the Q-U-I-R-E yeah. next to the C-H-O-I-R. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, the, um, there's a choir is that area where the yeah. singers sit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I'm sat next to them. Arnie's Day comes pretty much near the end. It's when they're taking communion. And I was quite glad to be asked to do that part of it because it's very quiet and intimate mm, you know in, yeah. a, in, a, in a service that is very um fanfare and um celebratory it's quite nice to have um just in general it's quite nice to have a sort of moment of reflection so the piece is very um qu- it's very predominantly very quiet it's fairly simple um and uh the way I see it is the sort of the material for the voices gradually gets handed over to the organ at the very end, and um, uh, it's it's it is sort of interesting. I've always been interested. I mean, it's basically the piece plays with sort of fragmenting a unison melody, mm. um, which is it, 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 I've always been interested in this. In going back to what you're saying about these different types of music, but sort of. North African music and folk music in general, but sort of traditional music tends to be based around unison and people more or less playing the same thing. So if you th- if you think of like um, Irish traditional music, like you might see um, in a pub, for example, it, the the fiddle players basically playing the same thing as the singers playing mm. the same thing. Um, uh, as the, the guitarist or whatever, and because they're human and not they're not AI yet, uh, <laughs> that's next week. Um, there are these little areas where it's they they're not exactly together. Great. And those those things have always attracted me mm. to folk music. So I sort of I've sort of it's the same with North African traditional music, Arab traditional music, which is largely a voice in unison with an instrument. But occasionally they break apart very slightly, and it's those moments where you suddenly have depth, and so that's basically what the piece does um, with the Ernest Day text. And um, yeah, I got asked on more or less on Christmas Eve. Um, I had a mysterious email from Andrew Nethsinger, who is the director of music at um, the Abbey, and he wasn't even in post then. No, he was games still, were still there, wasn't they? Yeah, and he's. <laughs> This tells you the state of the business. I got I got an email from Andrew Nestinger says, "Can I can I talk to you privately about a personal matter?" And I I honestly I remember saying to my wife, I said, "I think someone someone at the Abbey is about to get cancelled." I honestly thought yeah. someone had, someone had done something bad, yeah. and th- they wanted an off the record discussion about whether I knew this person. Yeah, and I was like, oh. I, I was like, because I've had that with uh, with other things yeah. where yeah, yeah. where someone's like, you know, we 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 heard rumours about this person. Can, can you come on the record or off the record about? Have you ever heard anything? I thought, oh no, who is it? <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I was like, oh no, who's who's got in trouble for something? Um, and then uh, and he picked up the fingers. Uh, Hi, I've just been granted an audience with the king. And I thought he was winding me up, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but he sounded quite um, serious. And uh, and he said uh, he'd like you to write the Arnie's Day. And I, 
remember wondering where this came from. And I remember writing that piece for Lincoln Cathedral yeah. in 2006. Um, they'd spent decades restoring that amazing medieval um, window there. It's called the Dean's Eye Window. I, I'm, it, I'm from Lincolnshire. Oh, that, I know. It's, yeah, it's, one yeah, yeah, great, yeah. Um, it's one of the great pieces of masonry and stained I glass. I was confirmed in Lincoln Cathedral, yeah. actually, yeah. Oh, it's all coming out. Many, many, oh, many, dec- all many decades. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and it, it, because I think of his interest in, in architecture, he turned up at the premiere of this piece that I wrote, which was the setting of George Herbert, called The Windows, appropriately enough. And what I do remember is speaking to him afterwards and being when he was then Prince of Wales, being quite surprised because I'd been sort of led to believe that he was not particularly interested in the arts, a mm. um, bit conservative. Um, so I thought, what's he going to make of a premiere of a new piece of music? Um, with And it was for two choirs. And I, I remember thinking, first of all, he spoke in great detail and length about the piece and he spoke in quite detailed musical terms about the antiphonal effects of the piece and um, about this sort of sense of resonance in the piece and I remember thinking this is absolutely not what I was expecting you really thinking that someone you know whatever one thinks of the monarchy but someone in his position must be seeing huge amounts of music probably been to more has probably heard more music than than I've heard mm. in my life. And um, just being sort of amazed at how um, detailed his attention was to it. Mm. And, and that, I thought, was probably the connection. And then eventually there was a press release from Buckingham Palace um, where there's a sort of quote from him at the end saying, I was so moved by this piece at Lincoln Cathedral yeah. that I wanted this new work so it, re- it really was that and I think for, for something you know for a piece of music to stick in someone's mind like that it's, it says something I think more about them you know than the piece of music that they, just, they are someone that pays attention to the arts and I think given the world we're living in right now especially in the UK with what's going on at the BBC um, and the, the Arts Council to have someone like that you know clearly saying that the arts matter now I think is a good thing um, in general, um, mm. you're getting paid for it. Yeah, Excellent. we are getting paid for it. <laughs> it's not your civil duty. <laughs> no, oh no, and I don't get. What does the poet laureate get? They still get paid in rum. and they get paid, and from the privy purse, the privy purse but, holder turns up. But who is it that gets um, rum or port or something? It's probably something to do with the master of the Queen's music. I want some rum. Yeah, <laughs> barrels of rum, barrels, yeah. six rum. barrels of rum a year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's very, it's it's exciting. And I think, you've heard the piece? Yeah, they're really good. Considering it's a choir that you know is never going to sing together again because it's been put together from various institutions. Um, so it's it's it's, a, it's voices and an organ. Yeah. Stupid question. The other pieces that are playing throughout the, the are there are there instruments in, in in there or is it all voice based? Uh, in know? the in the service, yeah. it's so far uh, it's it's all voices and organ. I think. Yeah. In the concert beforehand, there are pieces for orchestra and choir and orchestra and solo voice mm. and things like that. And then there are things like fanfares. Um, 
I mean, in a way, I sort of wish that they do the coronation and then just do a concert yeah. Of, yeah. The, of the music so that people that don't want to get involved in the politics of it all, you know, can just go in here. Because it, it is a phenomenal bunch of musicians. Mm. Yeah. You're never going to see that group together like that again. And it's sort of like one of those great, you know, terrific concerts that, yeah. that you know, would be... I think would you know if you if you did, if you put all those people in the Royal Albert Hall you'd sell out yeah you'd sell out the concert and you know easily um, and Decca are recording it aren't they for immediate availability yes yes which so, is very good for them so at yeah. least you can listen to it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. but it's 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 it's, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a very I mean it is it is a very you know unique event. Um, it's a tremendous achievement to be asked to be part of it. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's a tremendous honour. I'm um, very, yeah, I'm very excited by it actually. And sort of, it's funny because you look back, you know, immediately in my mind, I was thinking of what are the pieces that I like that have come out of the '53 coronation mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and it's for me, it's I think Vaughan Williams' "Oh Taste and See." That's a really nice sort of gem yeah. of a piece. I thought about the obvious question about this. Yeah, go on. What do your parents think about it? They must be so proud. Um, I think they, they must be. <laughs> I think they are. It's like winning a medal, you know. You, you get it, you know, mainly for your parents' benefit, is it? You know, well, it, it th- all you know, worked. You know what's interesting <laughs> about this is um, it's a very visible uh, thing to happen. So. You know, there are things in your professional life that you're really proud of, but anyone that isn't totally involved in your world isn't going to quite get it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've just been commissioned by the, to do an opera for this big opera house. And mm. Lovely day. Love, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and your friends are like, right, what do you want to drink? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's Not your round. It's your round. It's your round. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that's sort of three years of your life. And, yeah. it's, you know... Whereas here, I mean, let's face it, we're talking about a four-minute piece of music. Um, but that is what everyone, everyone who's ever known me has got in touch about. Yeah. And so it is that very sort of high-profile thing that I find sort of quite interesting. And, yes, you know, all my family are very proud of it. I think... I think well, you carried on uh, feather cushions around the house I have visiting been. your parents. Yeah, that's, how, that's how I came in today, yeah, yeah. Uh, by private carriage. Um, <laughs> the, the one they're not using, the other gold one. Yeah, the old one. The old one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not as comfortable as I'd yeah. like, but, you know, I'm just a composer. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they are proud. I think part of it, a part of pride, which... I don't know if that's a... Is that one of the deadly sins? But anyway... I think it a, is, yeah. Once a part of pride, of course, is the, is the ability to say to other people, look what my son's doing or look, yeah. look what my friend's mm-hmm. doing. And, and this goes back to this point that 99% of my career success, nobody can say that because, because classical music world is such a sort of hermetically sealed Niche, environment. Yeah. And um, this is the, the one thing that isn't that and so that is what makes it very exciting and very different and I think I think ultimately that's what you that's what I think about the coronation itself I feel in a way it's like you know in the way that people who don't really watch football will watch the World Cup yeah and there's some there's something about these events that that do attract the attention of, of everyone that may or may not be paying attention 
And similarly with the World Cup, you've got people saying, oh, when, I'm, when, when, when can I turn the TV on and yeah. see something that isn't football? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, sure yeah. you've got people saying, when, when can I turn yeah. the TV on and not see anything that's covered in gold and uh, involving crowns and what have you? Well, I think, I think not only are your parents proud, but we, your Aww. publishers are proud. We're very, thank very you. proud of you. And well, um, thank you. I just thank you so much for your time on what must be a hugely busy visit no, to come and spend an hour or so with us in here. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed it, and uh, you might not know this, but I've been with you for 20 years. Hooray! What, this year? This year's 20th? Uh, this year is the 20th you year. You don't so look old enough for 20. 2004 would be the 21st year. Yeah. Oh, 2024. Yeah, I started in January, yeah. January 2004. So We're in the twentieth year at the moment, that's and right. the anniversary yeah, will be January the first of next and year. I'm in my twenty-second year. Wow! Oh, you have to win, don't you? I She's so competitive. <laughs> Honey, I discovered Tariq O'Regan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I made him what he is. I made <laughs> that by what he is. Come Hang on! on. Um, Who did you discover? Tariq O'Regan. <laughs> <laughs> 1995. Brilliant. <laughs> on Thank that you note, so much. I think we're done. <laughs> Brilliant. This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.